From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. I will say that working with people who are psychopathic uh, impressed on me how not like that most people are. Yeah. You know, and Uh and I think that really reinforced for me that the average person is capable of true compassion. Welcome back to Circle of Willis. I'm your host, Jim Cohn. And I'm Sage Stangway. So today's episode is about Abby Marsh. Can you tell me about her? Yeah, Abigail Marsh, or Abby, as I like to call her, as most people call her, is a professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. She's a clinical psychologist, and she has made a career out of the overlap between research on emotion, on psychopathy, and altruism. Which I think for some people might seem like, whoa, those are two very different things. Studying why people are kind and selfless feels like a very different thing than studying, you know, people who might kill people. What Abby's insight was, was to realize something that I mentioned in the interview seems obvious in retrospect. Altruistic helping behavior, really giving of yourself selflessly is sort of the opposite of psychopathic behavior where you have almost complete disregard or maybe complete disregard for the well-being of another person. Early on in your conversation, you ask her to recount a story of, of something that happened to her when she was 19 that really changed how she thought about altruism and, and what people do for, for strangers. Let's hear a little bit of that. It was driving on I-5. I-5 uh, in from, Washington State. That's right. Big, the major freeway yeah. uh, linking Seattle and Tacoma. And I was driving home and it was late at night and I was crossing a little bridge big bridge actually back into Tacoma and my car spun out when I swerved spun out. yeah I swerved to avoid a dog so I ended up uh, in the fast lane of the freeway where my car came to rest and then the engine died somehow from doing all these spins and I couldn't get the engine to turn back on again and so I'm stranded in the fast lane of the freeway over the crest of the bridge so that the cars can't even see me until they're practically on top of me. Oh, my God. And there's no shoulder because it's a bridge. And uh, it was the middle of the night. I had no phone because it was the 90s. And yeah. yeah <laughs> right now, the plot would change completely. Right. I'd be calling 911, which actually could have been worse. But anyways, yeah. um, and so I, I was sure I was going to die. And I just didn't know how long it was going to be. And uh, this man appeared at the passenger's side just window. Appeared? Yes. Uh, my memory is that I was furiously trying to get the car to turn back on. And I, the mo- what I didn't realize in the moment was that it was still in drive. And so I needed to put it uh. back in park to get it to turn on. But I was... That's, but you were freaked out. I was freaked out. I was 19. Yeah. I was. Uh, I thought to turn on the brights uh, and the flashers right. to try to make myself yeah, more visible. Yeah. And I remember having this debate about should I stay in or get out, which is worse. I have no idea. And so my memory is that... So the car windows were rolled down because it was... Um, summer and uh, I just heard a rap on the passenger side window which was the side near the shoulder and I turned and there's a man standing there uh, who says you look like you could use some help and I said yes I could so what he'd done is he'd parked on the other side of the freeway which must have been a split second decision because he would have been going freeway speed when he saw me then he'd run across the road in the middle of the night and then to get into my car, he had to run back into traffic again, hop in the driver's seat. I scooched into the passenger seat. And then he figured out what I had not, which was that the car was still in drive, got it turned back on, and then gunned us back across the freeway and parked behind his car. It was all over in seconds. Um, he definitely saved my life. And then he said, you know, he looked at me, and I'm sure it was a disaster. And he said, you don't look so good. Can I follow you for a little bit to make sure you get home? And... Uh, I said, no, no, I'll be okay, I'll be okay. And he thought, all right, you take care of yourself. And then that was that. And wow. he was just gone. And that sort of, that stuck with you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I was in a daze for days afterward. It changes the way you think about humans uh, when a stranger does that for you. 
It's all well and good to read about strangers saving other people's lives off in some newspaper article. It's just, it's real in a way that it's only hypothetical, I think, yeah. when you read about it. It's like the difference between knowing something semantically right. and, and understanding yeah. it. Really Reading good... about hitting a baseball and then hitting a baseball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a really different. Exactly. And this becomes like her origin story. <laughs> yeah, a core memory a for core her. A <laughs> core starting point. Mm -hmm for her career because she has a few questions. One of them is, why did he stop and help her? The other is, why doesn't it matter that she's a stranger? And the other is, why does she still not know even who he is? What was the payoff right. for him? Yeah. These are questions that have long plagued biology, you know, because Darwin was like freaked out by this possibility. It didn't seem to fit with the theory of evolution, and it's spun off all kinds of theories about that. But what Abby's really done is, is, is center this series of questions within psychology and neuroscience and really try to pursue them. But she had to study examples of that kind of selfless behavior. And in a fascinating way, what that meant was that she had to study examples of behavior that was completely callous to the feelings and, and, and well-being and safety of others. Let's take a listen to your conversation. You actually grew up in Tacoma. Well, where I grew up was actually University Place, which at the time university was... University Place? What's that? It's a town of 30,000 people, not even I've in Tacoma. Heard of it. Exactly. It doesn't what have a hell? university in it. It's the, yeah, it's the it's, most ridiculous Or is, is it even a place? Yeah, it's like a very cute little place. misnamed place. It's a ridiculous... I mean, there have been multiple <laughs> attempts to try to change the name, to have <laughs> something like to Bay do... Turtle Bay, New York. Yeah. No, no turtles and no bay. Exactly. Um, it was a, it, When we moved there in 1980, I think, it was right after St. Helens exploded. Um, oh, we just missed that. Yeah. It, it was very rural, full of apple orchards and horse pastures, and there was even a sign in the Safeway parking lot that said, no horses in the parking lot. And you'd see people, you know, riding their horses to places. It was like we had moved to the West. Who was the celebrity that grew up near? Ted Bundy. Oh, yes. <laughs> I guess celebrity is one word for it. <laughs> Ted Bundy. Yeah. I mapped it out. Prescient. Yeah, three miles away. Three miles away. And Kent, and if my house was here, and Ted's was here, three, between three and four miles away, and Kent Keels was here. Kent Keel. Yeah, Kent Keel and I grew up in the Another same neighborhood. Celebrity. Although we, although um, we didn't. Um, <laughs> Maybe not a celebrity. Maybe we're overstating it. Ken would be delighted to have you yeah. call him a celebrity. Yeah, um, I bet he would. He, yeah. So he and I grew up in the same neighborhood, actually. But he's enough older so than me. So two of the world's most gifted psychopathy researchers live just down the road from Ted Bundy growing it's up. It's no accident, right? I mean, everybody in town be. was obsessed with him. It was horrifying to know that this person had grown up in our yeah. town and nobody had well, any Well, you know, idea. I have a sort of a Ted Bundy story, too. You know, I, really? I used to work at the Seattle Crisis Clinic. Did you um, really? Yes. I worked there for a long time. And, wow. I, and I used to work in the same phone room that he used to work no in. Way. Yeah. Good. Yes. It has creepy vibes and to he, it. I always feel conflicted, and you must get this all the time because you study... Psychopathy, right? right. I mean, you probably talk about psychopaths. You don't want to like glamorize or celebritize them too much, but there was this like weird Ted Bundy was here kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And he used, to, he used to like select his victims, some of them, through mm. the crisis lines. That I didn't know. Yeah. That's awful. I heard that anyway. I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, it's amazing how many people in that area have a Ted Bundy story. I went to University of Washington. I was I did an interview there once, yeah. and uh, one of the clinical psych professors there was Ted Bundy's psychology professor. Oh, yeah. And no, had no idea. No, he got a psych degree from the exactly. University of Washington. And this guy introduced Ted to his wife and wrote him, letters, wrote him letters of recommendation for law oh, school. stop it. Come on. Nobody I knew. I can't stand it. I know. He shoplifted at one of the Nordstrom's I used to sell clothes at. So how was Dartmouth? Uh, Dartmouth was great. I had picked it back when people got information about colleges from big books. Uh -huh, you know, right, those um, Barron's books and yeah, things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I went through and I earmarked all the ones that had five stars for academic quality. So and then I good. went back through and unflagged all the ones that had low quality of life ratings. So like nice. Chicago was out, unfortunately, wow. and a few other very good schools. Yeah, yeah. Dartmouth obviously survived both of those decision criteria. Did you get a psych degree? I did. Was intending to be pre-med, like half my class, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was my intended 
goal as well as an undergrad. Yeah, because you don't you don't get much exposure to the full scope of science as well, a high school student. Well, if you were pre-med, then, then you probably did, you know, a lot of chemistry and, and bio. Did you do like a I bio quit series? much, much faster than that. I yeah. quit three days or something into my first pre-med bio class. Is that right? <laughs> and I was taking psychology at the same time, yeah. intro psych, pre-med biology. Well, what, there was it, no it was, contest. It, it, when did you finish up undergrad? 99. 99. Mm-hmm. And uh, you went to graduate school at, you went to Harvard? I did. Wow. Yep. I think, you know, being at Dartmouth was a good... Um, yeah, precursors. Yeah. Like, like, yes, it is one of the, the less Ivies scary are. Ivies. Who'd you work with? I worked with Nalini Body. Right. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. What an, what an incredible experience. It was very cool. It was, um, it was a great experience, everything about it. And so while you're go- going through undergraduate and graduate school, is there anything about this experience, this story that you, that you told us that's, that's sort of bubbling in your consciousness at any point? You know, it's one of those things that, in retrospect, I I try not to over-read the situation. I, I don't want to say it was a, you know, I will study altruism, and yeah. that was the only thing I will ever think about from that moment on. But it was clearly at the core of all the kinds of questions that I was asking. Like what? What kinds and of the questions th- were you asking right away? Well, for my undergraduate thesis, um, I'm interested in facial expressions, and I was working with my wonderful undergrad advisor, Bob Clack, who studied um, many things having to do with how we perceive faces. And I remember just having this moment. I had been doing a paper on how we perceive differences in facial age. So what are things that cue us to the age oh, of cool. somebody's face? So all the way from a face that's babyish to one that looks old. Yeah, yeah. And then I was simultaneously doing a research project with Bob Clack on facial expressions. And so as I was writing this paper on facial babyishness and trying to get people to look fearful in these photos I was taking, it suddenly hit me that, hey, when I'm trying to get people to look fearful, I'm actually trying them to get them to look more babyish. And isn't that interesting? Because we know that babyish faces wow. are appeasing. And they signal, don't hurt me. Please help me. I need help. I'm weak and vulnerable. Getting, I have and ba- never thought of it that way. You, you want to keep reading my book. That's it. That's the, that's the, that's at the core of all of it. And it was my undergrad thesis idea. And I remember coming to Bob with it. And I said, I think fearful expressions uh, were, you know, be- came to look the way they do because they look babyish. And so they signal that you were vulnerable and you need help. And they elicit altruistic impulses from people just the way babies do. And he's like, that's the most harebrained idea I've ever heard. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's great. <coughs> it's awesome. Anyways, and I, but to his great credit, because he's a wonderful scientist, and he, he, I have always thought of him as sort of a wonderful model for how to be a scientist, just curious and willing to consider almost anything. He let me run some studies to get the preliminary data on that question. So yeah. it was, you know, that was an altruism question right from the beginning. It's very foundational <laughs> when I think about what follows in, in your career, exactly. your sort of literature. Yeah, no, so here I am, you know, how wow. many years later, still looking at questions related to my yeah. undergrad thesis. One of the things I always found so unsatisfying about a lot of discussions about emotions was that I've often felt like sort of the interpersonal functions mm-hmm. were, I couldn't quite get a handle on them mm-hmm. from a lot of the dominant theories. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, well, it's just expressing. Right. It's just expressing. Right? right. It's not compelling, you know, sort of social dynamics right. in any way. Well, I think it's because animal behavior has always been my other main interest. In mm-hmm. fact, the study in my Psych 1 textbook that I flagged as the one that sort of made me realize you can be a psychology researcher for a living and wouldn't that be cool was a study on teaching uh, primate sign language. Oh, yeah. I I love animal behavior. Yeah. If Dartmouth had had a primate research program, I surely would have ended up doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's exciting stuff. Yeah. And if you have a dog or if you're familiar with animal behavior in general, you know that that's exactly how animals use fear and submission cues is to ward off attack or to elicit aid. And so I think we sometimes see other animals' behavior more clearly than we see our own. We don't come to it with quite as many assumptions. And so I think this is a really useful lens for understanding human behavior. So you probably didn't know this at the time, but you were really starting to build a program almost right right from the beginning. Yeah, I guess. I mean, again, certainly unwittingly. Nobody knows that, right? Yeah, unwittingly, right? Yeah, yeah. Nobody really realizes that. When does 
the study of psychopathic behavior mm -hmm. start arriving on the scene? So I was in the process of doing my dissertation. I had actually been going to look at gender differences, I think. I was something to do with high and low power people and are they better or worse at recognizing other people's Fear emotions faces, yeah it turns maybe. out they're not big gender differences in emotion accuracy i was also looking at altruism in this series of studies and found this whopping correlation between how accurately people recognize fearful expressions and only fearful expressions and how altruistically they behaved in this unrelated paradigm huge i mean like a correlation of I think like 0.6 or something it's wow. insane right recognizing fear accurately was highly correlated with whether you were kinder in this paradigm versus not. And so then we ran the study again with tighter controls and found exactly the same pattern and found that fear recognition <clears throat> predicted behaving kindly in this paradigm better than self-reported empathy, better than gender, better than mood. And then we ran a Katie Banks type paradigm where people had the opportunity to give money or volunteer time to help this right. stranger they heard about in the lab. It was sort of a gold standard altruism task. Yeah. And again, found that recognizing fear was actually a better predictor of donating money than even the empathy inducement that we use, which also worked. But recognizing fear was this really strong Isn't predictor. And so all this time, it had been really difficult to find any good individual difference variables that predicted altruism. And it was seemed to be mainly about situational variables. And everybody knew that there was variation in how people behaved in the lab. But it, finding predictors of individual differences was really hard. And looks like fearful expression recognition as a predictor. And so this seemed really weird. And it, it even, it was included in some review of most unintuitive findings in social psychology of that year or something. Yeah. Until I came upon James Blair's work on psychopathy and people who were psychopathic, it turns out, are really bad at recognizing fearful expressions and predominantly fearful expressions. And there's been a couple of meta-analyses on that now. So there's really some is, starting to be convergence. Yeah, and right I'm like, oh, hey, right wait a minute. Amazing. Love uh, it when that totally happens. different literatures. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one of the things that I think suggests a, a more reliable, robust finding, you know, converging yeah. in from completely different starting places. Exactly. Right? So, you know, those, those like developmental psych and clinical yeah. psych and cognitive yeah. psych research on psychopathy and it dovetailed really nicely with what I'd been finding right. in my social psych right. studies in the lab. So what did you think about that? <sighs> I was uh, trying to make it all make sense. Actually, a philosopher <laughs> named um, Sean Nichols had this brilliant paper on the concern mechanism that James had cited quite a bit and that led me to mm -hmm. it. And that actually had the best explanation of it at the time, which was in that period, a lot of people believed that altruism was about good theory of mind, really high level yeah. cognitive abilities to sort of imagine another person's complex high level mental states. And Nichols looking at psychopathy and autism and other clinical conditions and developmentally said that's ridiculous. Clearly not. There's no evidence that that's true. The only thing that seems to be required to feel concern for other people's well-being, which is the state that directly motivates altruism, is just the ability to tell when they're in distress. Uh -huh. You know, to tell that somebody's suffering or experiencing fear. That seems to set it off. Now, how? Yeah. He didn't know. He's a philosopher. You start having to peel the page back on what human nature even is, right? Mm. Because why should just awareness mm -hmm. of a thing compel mm -hmm. a behavior? pretty animal. Yeah. Well, and again, it comes back to this interesting question about knowledge, right? Yeah, it's not yeah. about semantic knowledge. Right. It's about some much deeper understanding of what it, that person is right. feeling. right putting these two constructs together is the ability right. to detect other people's acute distress yeah. and the desire to care for other people's well-being. Yeah. Somehow those two things are connected. They're not the same phenomenon. One is empathy, really, in a very low level. It, it drives me crazy when empathy gets conflated with self-reported empathy because that's not the wow. same thing. Oh, I think wait, that... Wait, explain on that. <laughs> oh, that's, that's interesting. Right. So a lot of the time, and especially in the empathy wars, you know, people will... The empathy wars. <laughs> is empathy a good thing or a bad thing? Paul Bloom and all that. Right, exactly. Empathy gets conflated with self-reported empathy, right? Your your empathy is gets boiled down to how you respond on like the IRI, the, the self-report empathy form. Self-reported empathy, you know, it has all the weaknesses of other self-report measures and probably more than some because it's such a socially desirable yeah. construct. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not always convinced that people are fully aware of their own levels of empathy and care compared to other people. But I would argue that the ability to accurately detect when somebody else is in distress is, a, if anything, a more true form of empathy 
right? You are understanding somebody else's emotional state. I, it seems to be more strongly predictive of behavior, for example, than self-reported empathy. Well, and the stakes are high too. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone's in distress, you, it's, that's an important thing to know, yeah. right? So it's sort of a strong test. I guess in that sense. Yeah. I mean, we know that from the bystander yeah. literature, yeah, right? Yeah. That's one of the right. strong predictors of helping is whether yeah. you can just figure out that the person is in you distress tell. or if you're yeah. confused. Then, as tremendous luck would have it, uh, <laughs> was as I was looking for a postdoc, yep. my good friend uh, and colleague Tali Wheatley was at the NIH oh, and yeah. mentioned there's somebody who came to NIH recently from University called London. It, it wasn't even on any of his papers yet, so I had no idea that he was at NIH. And she says he does research on psychopathy. And of course, this was the RJR Blair that I had oh, been citing yes. in all oh of my, my dissertation God, of papers. Course. He was the single most cited person in my dissertation. Wow. And she said, well, he's at NIH now. He's doing research and he's looking Holy for a postdoc. Shit. I said, he is. You, I said, James Blair? That's not RJR Blair, is it? And it was. And <laughs> incredibly good fortune that in every sense. That is pretty lucky. Yeah. That yeah. is pretty lucky. Incredibly lucky. That lucky. So yeah. much luck. Unbelievable. Yeah. So you go to NIH. Mm-hmm. Is this where you start down the road of learning about brain imaging? Yes, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to go there. Of course, um, yeah, sure. Because, again, back in 04. This is 04, 05. Yeah, you know that? Harvard yeah, had no magnet. Well, and this is when I started learning neuroimaging, mm-hmm. too. It was sort of like, it was crescendoing a little bit about that time because yeah. it had been going on. And, you know, you were still seeing paper after paper and science and nature with neuroimaging data. And right, with like, samples of 15 people. With, yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah, that's what I did. And, <laughs> Me too. Uh, yeah. So exciting. Yeah, no, it was, it was incredible. I mean, it was just an amazing opportunity. Um, so I wanted to come to NIH for a number of reasons. I yeah. was getting married, and my husband was a Marine at the time, and mm-hmm. D.C. is a great place for, for people Marines. with military backgrounds. Yeah. yeah. And I really wanted to get into neuroimaging, and because Harvard had no magnet at the time, I mean, at the at that period of time, the only way to get into scanning was to know somebody right. at MGH who had, you know, a couple slots per week at three in the morning on a Tuesday or something. And it was really That's difficult. That's the other thing about that time. I don't think people really realize how hard it was to break in. Incredibly hard. To, to neuroimaging. You had to be, there were a few places, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't all over the place like it is now. No, uh-uh. And so I got to NIH, uh, took a crash course in everything brain. I, I mean, I take a neuroanatomy and psychophysiology. I had some, and I'd, I'd even taken an fMRI course. But of course, uh-huh. again, it's the difference between yep. knowing about it in a book and actually doing it. Huge difference. Huge difference. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I just remember the feeling oh, of Jesus. thinking I was, you know, here I had my PhD, and yeah. I felt like I was so sharp, and then I get to NIH, and I felt like the <laughs> biggest dummy. There were no Lord social psychologists there. Yeah, they were, these were physicians and yeah. You know, neuroscience PhDs and things. I got to do research uh, doing fMRI studies with the population he was working with at the time, which was kids who have psychopathic traits. What was that like for you? Uh, it was. Uh, Did you meet these? Ki- you must course. have met yeah, with yeah. these kids. I really, really, really enjoyed, and still do enjoy um, working with them and their families. You know, I value their time and they're helping us, and I find it just really interesting to talk to people who are high in these callous, unemotional traits who callous, just unemotional traits, yeah, who, who do things and feel things that just are fairly foreign to the rest of us. And yeah. so our main goal was to do brain scans on them. Okay. So we wanted to test how their brains are responding to these facial expressions. So what did you find? So uh, we recruited, I think it was 12 children with psychopathic traits, mm-hmm. uh, which again at the time was Tough considered... Tough to do. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, years to it took yeah. to recruit oh, that yeah. sample. And uh, every child was uh, subject to probably six or seven hours of screening and testing before we scanned them. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And we compared them to 12 kids with ADHD and 12 healthy kids who had no clinical issues as they looked at fearful and angry and neutral facial expressions. And we found, as exactly as we hypothesized, that the psychopathic children showed, on average, no amygdala response at all to the fearful expressions, whereas both the healthy kids and the kids with ADHD showed the pattern you find pretty reliably, which is an elevated amygdala response. Yeah. And then no similar pattern in response to anger. It's pretty compelling that you see this fairly specific deficit I agree. I, I mean, I... And I, I should was, say what that is, that, that, it, yeah. that it, there's this deficit in recognizing fear faces, but not so much anger, mm-hmm. not 
joy, not sad. Yeah. A little bit was sad, right? As I recall. Sometimes sad, yeah. Sometimes I don't sad. get sadness. I'm the first uh-huh. to admit it. Sort of trails along with fear sometimes, uh-huh. but not as reliably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it has something. It has similar functional qualities. It does, probably. right? Yeah. It's sadness is such an interesting emotion. In some yeah. ways, I think it's more complex than fear. Right. Uh, fear is quite simple. Yeah, um, yeah. And we have good animal models of it. And yep, yep. It doesn't have, need a lot of brain so have software. So have you thought about how some of this specificity sort of squares with... I have. I mean, I wrote a paper on, you know, how we can understand emotions from studying psychopathy. Uh-huh. Um, because, and, you know, I came to this particular question of basic emotions versus not versus our emotional expressions, readouts, or social communication devices with no real dog in the fight. Um, uh-huh. I, I had good grounding in the facial expression literature, both from yeah. undergrad and graduate um, work. Uh, now, Nalini... And my one of my grad school colleagues, Hilary Anger Elfenbein, did a nice meta-analysis looking at all of the cross-cultural work on emotion recognition at the time uh-huh. that was in Psych Ball and found a huge effect for recognition of quote basic emotions above chance across cultures. And you know, they looked at yeah. it every which way. Because yeah. of course there were, I'm sure, reviewers on that paper who were not happy. Yes. And tested the finding in so many ways. And so to me, that has always remained the body of work that is most consistent with the idea that there's some germ of something that is universal and innate about yeah. emotional expressions like fear. I've definitely always, the, the, the hardest part for me in the debate mm-hmm. has always been the facial expressions. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not no. too worried about the universal physiological, you know, no. under the skin kind of, but signal is mm-hmm, public mm-hmm. so there's lots of opportunity for feedback mm-hmm. and hence selection mm-hmm. right so it uh, i've always wondered a, more about facial expressions and your work yeah. suggests to me it's one of the the many lines of work that suggests to me that there's really something pretty substantial signal wise about these different facial expressions that's that we kind of refer to as basic or basic yeah that's what i've come to think is that it's yeah. really hard to explain why there would be this consistent relationship between psychopathy and difficulty recognizing fear and and pretty clearly mostly fear yeah without there being something sort of essential whatever it is that's generating that expression and that we as perceivers recognize as fear so these kids had on average smaller Amygdala. We have found since then that they do have smaller amygdalas. We know that adult uh, psychopaths have, um, and I, I really shouldn't use the word psychopath about adults either. I've come to believe we should say people with psychopathy yeah, the same way yeah, we say yeah. it about any right. other sure. clinical condition. In any case, uh, we know that adults who are psychopathic have smaller amygdalas than healthy adults. The findings with kids have been a little more all over the map, but more recently it looks like. Well, you have that one story. You have some story about mm-hmm. th- there was a kid that you saw that you thought was... Oh, yeah. Classic. So this was a boy. He was one of the first kids that we brought in for the psychopathy study. And we had done the standard PCL interview with him to see if he had psychopathic traits. We did not have good enough background information on him, which is a great reminder, again, of some weaknesses Uh of self-report. Because when we asked him... So tell us about yourself. He told us about committing every crime in the book. I mean, it was right. probably, you know, 10 categories of he crimes he committed. No, I think he was 14. 14. Um, that was the age of most of the kids we got. Yeah. And he had shot people and he'd been shot and he stole stuff and tried drugs and beat people up. And you name the thing that one could do as a 14-year-old boy in the D.C. area. He'd done it. And uh, he, he said he had no empathy, no remorse for any of it. He was tough. He was, he was pretty cold. And his mom had some pretty serious mental illness issues herself. And so we had to talk to his aunt instead to get collateral information. And it wasn't, we didn't have enough. Yeah. Uh, looking back, it was clear. But anyways, he did qualify officially. He did qualify for our study as having, I think, a conduct disorder and elevated psychopathic traits. So we brought him in for a scan. And we did the thing we always do when we bring a kid in for a scan. We do the metal check, and then we uh, just give them a description of what the scanner is and how it will work and what they'll do when they're in there. And as we're describing the scanning procedure to him, I can tell his behavior's changing. He went from his usual very assured demeanor to 
shifting a little bit and he kept glancing at the scanner through the window, you know, past our head and just looking nervous. And nervous. it was really weird because we it sound s- very psychopathic. To no, me. we'd scanned a number of kids at that point. And it, this is the first kid who had come in seeming nervous. And this includes the ADHD kids, the healthy kids. Uh-huh. Um, and certainly the kids who were psychopathic, none of them had seemed nervous. When we asked him if he was doing okay, he said, oh, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm doing okay. I want my mom. Oh, and buddy. Yeah, and we said, no, uh, sad. Yeah, so his cousin was in the waiting room, and we brought his cousin in to hang out with him, or maybe his friend. You know, his cousin's like, Are you okay? And he's like, Yeah, I'm okay, but he wasn't clearly. And then it was, we're like, Okay, we've, you know, done all the preamble. It's time to go do the scan. You ready to go do the scan? And his eyes filled with tears, and he, he said, I don't think I can do it. He just, he wouldn't get up, he wouldn't go towards the scanner. And we were just stunned. I mean, we, we hadn't seen that coming. And, you know, again, the, the, the scary things that this kid had encountered in his real life and the way he described them did not give us any premonition this was going to happen. And he said, I'm sorry, guys. Just apologize to us. I, I thought I could do it, but I can't do it. I'm oh really sorry. And then he gave me, me this right big now. hug, this big, skinny teenage oh, hug. Oh, oh, stop it. Oh, my God. I just And then in that moment, I just realized we had this kid all wrong completely he was not at all who we thought he was he was a, probably a pretty sweet kid who had a really crappy life and i mean really crappy we knew that from all the discussions we'd have with him and you know i think of him a lot you cannot diagnose psychopathy from either a genetic test or a brain scan so what that literally means is you could have a psychopath in the scanner mm-hmm. and they could have a normal sized amygdala Oh, for sure. I mean, okay. we don't have so it's anywhere not, it's not, near the level got, of granularity. You've got sort of sensitivity, but not specificity. Exactly. Yeah, it, yeah, we can we get very reliable mean differences yes. between groups. Right. Um, but as you know, there are both reliability and other kinds of yep. issues with all of our measures, yeah. including the psychopathy assessments. For right. example, this right. kid that we, yeah. you know, click, click, click it, you know, down the psychopathy checklist, he looked like he fit the bill. And then it in this so one tricky. moment, it was clear, whoops, we had him wrong. And, and yeah. kids in particular, you know, they're developing. And so we had a number of children that we assessed early on. And it looked like they were high in psychopathy, and then they veered off, and it turned out it was some early, strange manifestation of bipolar disorder or other right, things. So right. that's one no, reason. I, I used to do clinical work yeah. uh, a lot. I worked with at least one guy who was, you know, you don't get diagnosed with psychopathy. You get diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, and he, was, and he gave me every indication that he was a psychopath yeah. for a long time. But then we started talking about his fears about the world, mm. He said something that was like, you know, the the needle scratching across the record just made me stop and completely change the narrative. He's like, I lay awake afraid for my daughter. And I was like, what? Yeah. That's not what I expected you to say. Well, there's this idea of secondary psychopathy, which is an alternate route to becoming very antisocial and in some senses callous as well. Although, as you've seen, there's sort of chinks in the callousness. Yeah. That is more likely to result from abuse, neglect, yeah. gross yeah, sort of like emotional dysfunction. Yeah, terrible life. Yeah. So did he have conduct disorder? Did he do right. antisocial things? For sure. But I think the route by which he got there was different than the other children that we interviewed who grew up in these lovely families with other kids who were doing great and had no signs of obvious dysfunction or hardship in their lives and still were torturing the animals and taking their parents' car joyriding and setting fire to things. And, you know, that has some other origin, (laughs) clearly. And But can we see it in an an MRI, you know? Maybe not. Not not perfectly, obviously. There's so much going on. Right, there's so much going on. There's so many different, and there's different ways it's titrated, you know, your life experience. Yeah. These are really cool studies. This is cool, provocative. It converges with other things. When does the idea occur to you to turn it around, to not study psychopaths, but to study, in in effect, their opposite? Well, it had always been there, right? I had been interested in altruism from the start. Right. One of the reasons I wanted to switch to studying psychopathy in the magnet was because of the really frustrating limitations of studying altruism in a lab. You bring people into a lab, you can't put them under actually risky situations, Lord knows. They always know they're being tested. And so it's really hard to get any true measures of altruism in the lab that you feel really confident in. And so I took the approach of let's do the clinical approach, study people who are lacking concern naturally as far as we can tell, 
try and see what's different about them. And I think it was it was that, right? So this approach of taking people whose behavior in the world tells us there's something unusual about them and then bring them into the lab and see if we can see yeah, what's different about them. Right around that same time, some of my <clears throat> former colleagues from Harvard who had been studying face recognition came out with this really cool series of studies on super face recognizers. So, uh-huh. you know, face recognition is a continuum that right. once upon a time people thought there was this weird group of people off on the uh, off on the end who can't recognize faces due to a disease right. or an accident and everybody else is normal. And then they're like, hey, wait a minute, actually, face recognition is a continuum. And you've got people who are very bad at recognizing faces, most of us in the middle. And then at the other end, you've got this complete continuum of people who are amazing face recognizers, freaky face recognizers. And I just, I have to believe that those ingredients sort of spun around because I knew that psychopathy had a lot of the same components. We knew it's a continuum, the strong heritability coefficient. There's some people at the very low end of the caring continuum, as I've sort of dubbed it and most of us in the middle but that just begs the question well, what's at the other end is yeah. there something like an anti-psychopath right. and so <laughs> yeah so around 2010 <laughs> I, had, I thought well what if we tried to get people in the lab who look the opposite of psychopaths and I thought of heroic rescuers of course but it it seemed a little difficult to um, reach out to people who are heroic rescuers and um, right around the same time I think it was Larissa McFarquhar had come out with that great New Yorker article on altruistic kidney donation. And it struck me, hey, now that is a really good example of incredibly altruistic behavior, you know, extraordinarily altruistic behavior. You're giving away one of your own internal organs for somebody you've never met before. And it has this beautiful parallelism uh, with another famous psychopath from Tacoma, well, Tacoma area, uh, the Green River Killer, who was probably the most prolific psychopath and serial killer in uh, U.S. history. His first serious crime that anybody knows about was stabbing a kid in the woods, just a strange kid he'd never met before, and he stabbed him right in the kidney, destroyed his kidney. Oh, come on. For no reason, just because. Yeah. And so I started, I submitted a grant proposal to support the research, and Templeton very happily funded it. I mean, yeah. I was happy I that they, they funded did. it. It's such a good idea. Thanks. And also the Positive Neuroscience and Center. Positive Neuroscience yeah. Center. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, think, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine who else would have funded that. Um, well, I mean, everyone should have. <laughs> well, that's kind. You, got, you know, you got to fund good research. That's a good idea. Thanks. I'm so, 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 so glad that I've had the chance yeah. to do it because it's been just Jesus. a joy to do this research. No question. How'd you find them? How do, you, how do you go about studying this population? Well, as fantastic luck would have it, there is a professor here at Georgetown who's part of our bioethics center who is on the board of the Washington Regional Transplant Center. Wow. Yeah. And so he helped get me in touch with their director, and they put out some letters to the, I don't know, I think it was maybe 10 or 12 altruistic kidney donors in this region asking them if they'd like to participate in a study. And then there was a national listserv that we posted an ad into for one of the national kidney organizations. I think it was UNOS, the United Network on Organ uh-huh. Sharing. So we posted some ads, and the amazing thing about altruistic kidney donors is that they're really, really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> we, it was amazing, and I, I, I tell this in my book about I had gone down to a conference in Texas. I think it was SPSP. I didn't have a smartphone at that point. And there was no, for some reason, no wireless access at that conference center. And I couldn't check my email until, I think it was almost a day until I'd gone down there. And I remember opening up my laptop, finally connecting to the wireless. And I just had been flooded with emails from altruistic oh kidney donors God. who, who awesome. wanted to participate in the research, which having studied special populations in the past, I know does not happen. It's a, a huge slog to find people when they're rare. And altruistic kidney donors, there were maybe 2,000 of them in the country, not even. We had enough people volunteering within days to fill the study. So we flew people in from, I mean, you name the state, we probably have flown somebody in from there. So you bring them into the lab Mm -hmm. and you run them through a similar battery? Yeah. So we ran them through an emotion task in the magnet where we did fMRI while they looked at fearful, angry, neutral expressions. And then we also measured their ability to recognize these expressions and then did a ton of other stuff. I mean, I think it was five hours of testing that each of them went through before they were done that first time. And we've done a couple rounds now, so we've been studying them for years. And this was after they had donated a kidney? Yes, so they all had to have completed the donation. Yes, because there is a a large number of people who volunteer to donate a kidney to a stranger. And they're like, oh shit, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And they're like, oh boy, this is kind of a big deal. Yeah, which is understandable. Yep. 
Yes. Um, yeah. So they had all completed the donation and we didn't know if we'd be able to get any of them. And yeah. so we had all sorts of other possibilities of okay. who we could recruit That's instead. That's wise. Yeah. Yeah. But it, as it turned out, it was no trouble at all to get yeah. 20 altruistic kidney donors here. So what'd you, what'd you find? So we found that they do look a lot like antipsychopaths. Uh, the antipsychopaths. Yeah. Yeah. They look like the opposite of a psychopath in um, a number of ways. They have a stronger amygdala response to fear, again, on average. Um, and again, to only fear faces. Fearful faces. Sorry. Yeah. That's right. To fearful expressions. And only fearful expressions, so we don't see this only, similar... Again, with the mm -hmm. specificity. And then their amygdala is larger than the controls uh, by about 8%. And only the amygdala, so we didn't find similar patterns for hippocampus. Although, interestingly, their whole brain is also bigger. So if you just look at their overall gray matter That's volume... I know. Uh, but even after you covary that out, their amygdalas are larger. And they are relatively better at recognizing fearful facial expressions than controls also. But again, not other expressions, like not anger. So it's not like they're just better, more socially sensitive overall, but they're more responsive to this one particular expression that seems to be so closely linked to care, concern, altruism. And what are they like? I've always said, certainly about the psychopathic kids that I have studied, that if I were to line them all up mixed in with healthy kids, you'd never be able to pick out really? who's who. No, definitely not. I've heard psychiatrists before, and maybe you know this, refer to certain disorders as waiting room disorders, where you can tell that that child has a serious uh -huh. disorder yeah, yeah, yeah. before you even start talking to them. And autism, you know, severe forms of autism right. or severe right. forms of psychosis right. sometimes fit that bill. And that is not true for psychopathic traits. It's a pretty limited set of problems. And it's, yeah. it's amazing how many things people who are psychopathic are not different in, yeah. in terms of... Right moral reasoning and a lot of personality yeah, IQ, measures. Oh, yeah, exactly, stuff, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And so initially I would have said the same was true about altruistic kidney donors, that if we mix them in with the controls, it would be difficult to tell who is who. I kind of think that that's true, although I think that maybe if you had the chance to chat with them for a few minutes, you might start to pick up on differences. It's not something I can really my finger on very easily but there's just a difference in the way they talk to you when you're first meeting them which I think is really closely connected to the fact that they wanted to give away an organ to a stranger and it's that they yeah. think about strangers differently they don't think about strangers as you know people to be kept at arm's length and again I don't think any of this is explicit and I the, the, the thing I want to emphasize above everything is that if you ask most altruistic kidney donors what is different about them, they will say emphatically nothing is different about them. They're just an ordinary person who happened to be in the right place with the right information at the right time. Right kidney. Yeah. They had a healthy yeah. kidney. Yeah. They found out what the need is for kidneys. There's nothing different about them. And yeah. so I, well, you know. They're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and how how well can any of us really ascertain ourselves that way? So yeah. <laughs> I, I should emphasize that while also saying that, that I have noticed a difference in working with them compared to the ordinary adults from the local D.C. community who we recruit as controls, who also, I would say on average, are pretty lovely people because yeah. participating in a psychology research that you have to come in for five hours of testing is kind of pain in the neck. Yeah, and So sure. anybody who's willing to do that is already right, a pretty nice person. Right, right. But the, the altruistic kidney donors are just so kind right from the get-go and not in a sappy way they're not martyrs there's nothing like that but there's this sort of openness or it just the the lack of feeling like there's a barrier or something yeah. there from the get-go yeah. it's really nice i really um it just i can't <laughs> i can't overstate what a joy it's been to do this kind of research i mean the interviews that we've done with them are you know not really part of the data that we've yeah. written up but I've learned so much from those interviews. And interestingly, we weren't going to do detailed interviews initially because we knew that they were altruistic kidney donors. So it's not like we had to get that from an interview. We had that from their hospital. Yeah. But I had an undergrad working in the lab, uh, Alyssa Mrazek, actually, who said, well, let's do some videotaped interviews with them because I think that would be valuable. <laughs> yeah. Looking back, I'm Absolutely. like, oh, my God, thank goodness she yeah, suggested thank that. God. Because they've been incredible to really get to know them as yeah. people. And I'd love see... to see some of those. Absolutely. One day. Well, um, quite a few of them. Actually, almost, I think almost everybody I've asked has signed an uh, yeah, agreement to, to have these yeah, interviews. As long as it <laughs> benefits the world. Yeah, so uh, you'd be welcome to. So would you say that you've hit on this sort of continuum that's really pretty fundamental to how humans operate, it seems like I to think me. so. Because you, you think about what humans are as a species, and we're this hyper-social, hyper 
cooperative. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hesitate to say hyper altruistic because that has a more specific right. meaning than cooperation. I mean, you can right. cooperate without being altruistic. That's right. Right. It, well, it depends on if you're asking a biologist or a psychologist. Right. A biologist, well, a biologist would say, yeah, cooperation <laughs> and altruism, not the exactly. same. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that working with people who are psychopathic uh, impressed on me how not like that most people are. Yeah. You know, and uh-huh. it, I think that really reinforced for me that the average person is capable of true compassion. Yeah. Because otherwise, why would we label some people psychopathic? Well, That's right. the point. It does seem like if there's a normal curve, that mm-hmm. the mean is going to be over in the, the mm-hmm. altruistic side of the zero. Yeah. Right? I mean, most people ha- are capable of true compassion, by which yeah. I mean truly caring about other people's yes. welfare for them. Yeah. Thinking of it as something that is variable, looking at the two ends of the spectrum as a way of sort of understanding what the key components are a variation uh is really i think what i've been doing yeah you do talk about oxytocin Mm -hmm. a bit as well Mm -hmm. like oxytocin sort of working hand in glove with this recognition of of distress this is the one effect of intranasal oxytocin that has survived meta-analyses is it improves recognition of fear (laughs) and only fear right (laughs) it's a killer right you're killing me with this it's amazing yeah. I mean, it's it's clearly doing something. Um, I think I know what it is, but we don't have any data to support it. But I think I have a reasonable. And wh- do, you, do you feel comfortable sort yeah, of sure. saying what that is? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's in the book. There, you know, it's a paragraph mm-hmm. in there that will be of no interest to anybody but actual academics who yeah. study this stuff. But I, it helped me to sort of put the pieces together. The, the paradox of altruism is that people who do things like donate kidneys, which is the group I you know, know the most about empirically, are very sensitive to other people's fear, which seems to result from strong amygdala responses to other people's fear, which is probably some reflection of their own capacity for fear because we think that that is how people recognize emotions like fear. So they have this robust capacity for fear. They don't have anxiety disorders necessarily. Some do, I should say. Uh-huh. And in fact, we have a couple, we a couple we've worked with have, have needle phobias. They, they faint when they get blood and have still donated kidneys, right? They do something that yeah. most of us wouldn't do because it's too scary, right? That we don't want to give a kidney to a stranger because it's super scary. So, so what they're doing, it's not that they're fearless, it's that they're brave. They are overriding their fear response to help somebody else. So how? Right. So there was this amazing study that came out in rats earlier this year by uh, somebody called Rickenbacker that showed that oxytocin receptors in the amygdala are what compel mother rats to leap into action to protect their babies from threat rather than freezing. So a mother rat under threat, so you train her to fear the smell of peppermint oil, and then you pipe peppermint oil into a cage. And the normal response is a fear response. You freeze. Yeah. But if the mother has pups in the cage with her, she overrides that freezing response with care. She, depending on the age of the pup, she either goes to them and protects them, you know, puts her body over them, or she tries to plug up the tube with sawdust. She, she's altruistic, right, trying to help her pups. And, and if you block oxytocin receptors, uh, you get rid of that response. And, um, and then they manage to also trace it to the amygdala. What oxytocin seems to be able to do is preserve the subjective experience of fear, certainly the physiological fear response. Like alarm. Yeah. yeah. And you'll get intact um, sort of hypothalamic-driven physiology, fear physiology. HPA kind yeah. of stuff. Which explains why you can still recognize fear, maybe even better. Yeah. Oxytocin might even amplify that response. Right. Because if you've got oxytocin, you can simulate that. Uh, right, even better. Right, right. But what it also does is it inhibits fear behavior, so it, including things like freezing and avoidance. And so it allows you to recognize that somebody's feeling fearful because you can still experience that state, you can still simulate that state, but it somehow shifts you away from uh, defensive behavior toward protective behavior. So, because it also hijacks dopamine. Right, and I mean, it, it, must, it, it does of, it through the dopamine system. Yeah, it go, exactly. it, 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 yeah it's yes. going to potentiate all exactly. these dopaminergic responses yeah. through nucleus accumbens. Yeah, and, I think of it like a switching station, like yeah. a rail yard, where it's yeah. like away from PAG right. uh, mediated right. freezing yeah. and toward straightly mediated uh, active care. I think that's I th- I'm, I'm, I would I would put money on the fact that that's what's happening. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. This is very, this is elegant. Thank you. And, and I love it also because I, I, I want to totally geek out a little bit uh, with some of the, get into the weeds a little bit mm-hmm. w- at this point. Because the, when I think about caregiving behavior, mm-hmm. 
I, I think about nucleus accumbens mm-hmm. a, a lot, nucleus accumbens shell, mm-hmm. uh, medial preoptic area, hypothalamus, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, where a lot of that oxytocin is synthesized mm-hmm. and it's all sort of pushing out into mm-hmm. regions like amygdala. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, medial, pre, uh, I mean, uh, uh, medial prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. BMPFC, and mm-hmm. these kinds of things. Do you imagine sort of expanding, you know, ways in which the, the future of your research program is going to kind of expand beyond amygdala to sort of bring in some of these other systems? Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if imaging the amygdala is hard and all its complexity, imaging, you know, hypothalamus and some of these other regions is oh, even harder. It's murder. And so we you can't really... Do, we, we, uh, we actually put sphere, spheroids down. Yeah. We just, we can't even... Yeah, yeah, I mean it's, it's like and, all you can do. and of course we know that there's all this incredible complexity within hypothalamus. So if you're yeah. y- if you're imaging the whole structure, I mean who knows what you're finding? And so, and of course we can't look at receptors in right. uh, using fMRI and using PET. We can only look at certain neurotransmitters, and oxytocin is not among them. And I know that there are people who are looking for ligands to yeah. measure oxytocin receptor activity, and when we can do that, we can answer my question. But we can't oh. do it yet. Ah. Oh. But with the route work, but I feel like the route work is so clear at this point that it still allows for a pretty good explanation. The other thing that I'm really interested in hearing what you said about bravery. Mm. So it's a funny kind of operational definition of bravery Mm -hmm. is that you have high fear and high, you know, caregiving intervention behavior Mm -hmm. on, you know, the, the, the classic line, you know, you know, bravery isn't the absence of fear at all. Right. It's, 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 uh, it's, doing it despite exactly right? that's um, exactly right but but then you know sort of really operationalizing mm-hmm. that at the at the we have this sort of oxytocin story mm-hmm. but it also seems like there's this potential self-control story like mm. this like prefrontally mediated sort of you know it's sort of especially sort of lateral prefrontal cortex you know how we regulate mm-hmm. affective responses mm-hmm. to control our behavior but that gets complicated too it mm-hmm. seems to me because one of the things i don't know if you know about marco Iacoboni's work with uh, TMS. Mm-hmm. So he he's one of the things he finds is that when he actually sort of disrupts uh, self-regulatory prefrontal cortex a- activity, people behave more altruistically. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that relates to Dave Rand's oh, research David on Rand, yeah. yeah, with the cognitive load. Exactly, and all that, that altruism stuff. is actually uh, for most people that is the intuitive response. So, and do you think that's that's that that you know you're sort of converging with these lines of research to, yeah. to suggest that people are. Most people. Most and this is where it always comes in. It's like, yep, yeah, for most people, that's true. For a subset of people, it's definitely not true. It's really great because I really, I often feel compelled to like try and answer the question, are, are people m- intrinsically altruistic or intrinsically selfish? And your work more than most, mm-hmm. I think, more than most is really going, there's a continuum. Exactly. You know? That's and, why and, right? we have trouble it, this answering is a this bad question. question. Exactly. It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. People vary. And it's why yeah. this, you know, are humans good or evil question has not been answered yeah. in the thousands of years people have been trying to answer it. It's because you can always find examples of people who do things that are truly good and truly evil. And that's because there's a continuum. Like there's a continuum for everything. You know, it shouldn't be surprising. Right. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But it is. Because I, you know, I want that answer. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, God. Yeah. And but it's hard, right? Because as a society, we want to know, like, what are people really? Because then we can just go forth into the world being trusting yeah. or untrusting and knowing it's the right, right answer. But as everybody who knew Ted Bundy could tell you, yes. sometimes people who or seem trustworthy not, yeah. are not. The, the, but, I, but I still want to try and get you to answer the question okay, okay. in this one sort of probabilistic kind of way, mm-hmm. right? So we talked about how there's this distribution mm-hmm. Right, it's maybe a normal distribution. I don't know exactly what the distribution looks like. Mm-hmm. Do you have a good sense in the normal population? It just what depends it on what measure you're using. Yeah, I guess so. But but, but I will say that a lot of measures kind of boil down to this two third, one third. That's uh, where I was going. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly where I, I was yeah. going. I, there's Shit. a lot of different studies, including some that Dave Rands have done and um, some on psychopathy, that suggest that two thirds of people are pretty good, and they may pretty act, altruistic. Yeah, they yeah. certainly have the ca- they have the real capacity to care about other people. Yes, yes, and will be selfless at least some of the time, with quite a bit of variation within them. But you know, two thirds of people are can be pretty well trusted, and then there's another third of people who vary a lot also, but are probably less trustworthy and are, are much Does more that... often going to be out for them themselves. Yeah. Do you have, you know, this is just ringing this bell for me that I haven't thought of in a long time, the old 
sort of game theory, hawk and dove, yeah, you know, exactly. you know do, do, do you think this maps onto that in any particular way? Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. you know, the idea would be that you can't have too high a proportion of truly uh, psychopathic of, people in the population or cooperation falls apart right. because they're not trustworthy. Right. They'll they, be they'll be spotted or they'll they'll yeah. they'll be an increase in yeah. in, in, in right. wariness. That's right. They they can gain because they are out for rare. themselves in the population only because they're rare. And yeah. if they were common, everybody would become so untrusting that right. cooperation would break right. down and yeah. we'd have no society. Well, I could keep going all day and i just want to thank you this is always such a such a pleasure of course always so sage i have to ask this and i ask this of all my undergraduate students when i teach about abby's work do you have two kidneys yes i do i do have two kidneys you see where i'm going with this Why won't you give one of them up to someone who might die if they don't get one who doesn't have one? So I actually thought about this. I was born with renal reflux, so my ureter. <laughs> yeah. So you've got an out. So I have a, I have a little bit of an out. I, I don't have problems with my kidneys anymore. Theoretically, with this condition, is there a, you know, supposing you don't grow out of it, could oh. you wind up? needing a kidney, for example? That's a really good question. You know, if I didn't have access to antibiotics and had reflux, yeah, you you could definitely sustain real damage to the kidneys if you just have perpetual infection. So you occupy a very unique space as theoretically someone who could Sure. Either donate a kidney or wind up needing a kidney. Right, right. I have, a, I have just a, a little bit of a traumatic relationship with health in my body. Yeah. I don't feel very bad about saying I'm going to keep both of my kidneys. Yeah. Whether that's actually medically warranted or not, right? Like, I am totally prepared for if a doctor looked at me and was like, you're a fine candidate. Give me one of those. Well, I, I can accept that. What comes up? But I might not give them my right, kidney. Right, 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 <laughs> right. In 10 years, I've had one student startle me by saying, yeah, I'm going to do that. Wow. And I don't know whether they did or not, right. but they seemed confident and right. determined. So, um, Something I wonder about is, like, do they grow up thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll give a kidney? I, I think it's like a split-second thing is. that happens for they, them. They, you know, Abby writes about this in her, her book, Fear Factor. You know, they're, they're watching the TV is the, is the sort of canonical example. But here's another way in which people learn about someone else needing a kidney. It's your sibling. Yeah. And, you know, right away, across the class, everybody goes, oh yeah, I would totally do that. Maybe most of us wouldn't give our kidneys voluntarily to a total stranger, given all of the expense and risk and et cetera. But most of us maybe would for a close family member. Maybe there's some middle ground for a friend or an acquaintance. Maybe for some people, there's like, no, I'm not going to do that for anybody Mm -hmm. uh, under any circumstance. That continuum has deeper meaning for me personally. It sort of suggests what Abby says, there being people with psychopathy rather than being psychopaths. Yeah. Right? And she really emphasizes that. And I think it's super important because our popular media, our entertainment, we like to think of psychopaths as psychopaths, like some kind of monster yeah. that's separate. But, separate, yeah. but that's not, that that hides a lot of ambiguity and unclarity and interesting questions about etiology. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about how sometimes people with psychopathic traits don't have any of the neural or genetic markers mm-hmm. that are associated with psychopathy. They just had a terribly difficult childhood. Right, right. Um, and vice versa. You see that? See it vice versa. Right. There are probably degrees. I think it's very human for people not engaging in this type of research to see psychopaths, you know, as they are termed by the media and really want to reject everything about it and say, I can't understand how any of this would come to be. And yeah, that's kind of the point. It's antisocial behavior. We're social creatures. It, it's stuff that 
that directly flies into the face of of how you know we're kind of programmed to to cooperate yeah it seems to me that you know if psychopaths are just monsters right then i don't have to worry about my own antisocial tendencies oh, to the yeah. extent that they are we we know that ordinary people in Nazi Germany and Rwanda yeah. did things that almost anybody would count as psychopathic. And that's deeply unsettling. It's comforting to other them. Fear ends up being this really surprisingly key component in Abby's studies. And it's this, this emotion that totally connects psychopathy to altruism in the sense that like if you can recognize fear in other people that's that's the key to all of this this is why the title of her book is the fear factor it is the through line fear is where basic emotion psychopathy and altruism research meet she also brings to psychological and neuroscientific research the insight that these emotional expressions like fear, they are root and branch signals. They're not just outputs of some internal state. They are signals that don't just offer information to the world, but literally that control behavior in others. That's what signals do in animals. The music of Circle of Willis is written and performed by Tom Stoffer and his band, The New Drakes. For more information on how to purchase their music, go to circleofwillispodcast.com. You can also find all of our old episodes on the website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates. Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. <laughs>